Good evening. Welcome. My name is Christine Williams. I'm the Director of Communications here at the National Academy, and I welcome you. Um, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, I'd like to announce briefly that the next review panel will be held on April 24th. It is the last review panel for the season, so you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, the panelists will be Deborah Garwood, Blake Gopnik, and Alexi Wirth. And of course, David as the moderator. Um, the review panel is funded by the Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council for the Arts, a state agency. It's really great to see so many familiar faces here and new ones as well. And um, I would like very much to be able to stay in touch with all of you uh, to let you know about future public programs and especially about the review panel. So when you leave this evening, if you haven't already signed up, if you wouldn't mind leaving your email address at the small table which will be outside this exit door. Um, and we promise we won't sell it or, or, or harass you heavily. Uh, I would also like to ask you to turn off your cell phones at this point. Uh, the museum exit will be closed when you leave, so don't try to go back the way you came. Just go right through that exit door there. Um, so I would like to um, happily introduce David Cohen, art critic, who is also the director of the gallery at the New York Studio School and uh, the editor of artcritical.com. You can also listen to past review panels at the website, www.artcritical.com. Thank you again. Enjoy. Thank you very much indeed, Christina, and to, to the National Academy for the fantastic, Christine, and to the National Academy for the fantastic organization of the review panel. We're wonderful to be here, and uh, I think we're on uh, number 25 or something, aren't we? I don't 29. We're on number 29. There you are. Well, tell me if you're, this is your, put your hand up if this is your first review panel. Wow. This is very encouraging. It means, however, I'll, I'll need to tell you how we play this little game of ours, because um, not that it's complicated, but you might want to know the rules. And while, you're, while we're sort of doing a little, little preamble and people are uh, having fun putting their hands in the air, uh, indulge me for one moment longer while I do a little um, very informal uh, market research. Um, uh, we've always been on a Friday night, and there are people who love it being on Friday night, and then there are others who are not so sure they love it on Friday night. So what I'm going to do is, first of all, ask who is ecstatically happy that it's Friday nights and would be heartbroken if it was any other night of the week? Okay. And uh, the second question is, um, uh, well, actually, that was a little bit overly worded and biased. <laughs> Let me just say... Just say, who doesn't mind that it's on a Friday night? All right. Yes, yes. It's all in the wording, isn't it? Yes. So, uh, having established that, um, uh, let's say, those of you who did not put up your hand and resent the fact that it's on a Friday night, um, bearing in mind, I think you know the days of the week. There's another six. I'm only going to mention uh, two or three of them, but... Uh, Put your hand up when you, when you think that's the one you'd like best. <laughs> I, actually, let me tell you in advance that they're going to be Monday and Tuesday. So who would, if it wasn't on a Friday, who would rather it was on a Monday? And who would rather it was on a Tuesday? All right. Okay. So far, the consensus is still with Fridays, I think. 
But then, of course, we haven't heard from the silent majority who never come, perhaps because they're in the Hamptons or observing the Jewish Sabbath, so we will never know. But that's the market research element. Thank you very much. Now, more importantly, the business of the evening is the review panel. First and best thing is to introduce you to those people who make it possible, my guests. From my far left, they are uh, David Ebony, who is managing editor at Art in America magazine. Uh, he's the author of uh, three books, uh, Botero, Abu Ghraib, uh, Emily Mason, The Fifth Element, and a monograph on the Italian uh, painter Carlo Maria Mariani. Uh, he's the author, of course, of numerous uh, catalogue essays, and as, as a critic in the past, used to write for Artnet magazine and, and many other titles. Um, his top ten list, that he used to be a, uh, uh, an enticing feature at Artnet magazine, is now to be found again at artinamericamagazine.com, the uh, online element of Art in America. Carol Deal, who is also a contributing editor uh, for Art in America, is a painter, art critic, and poet. Uh, her writing has uh, also been published in Art News, uh, New York Art and Auction, New York Magazine, Art and Auction, Art and Antiques, where she was a contributing editor in the, um, from 84 to 95, um, uh, and also the New Art Examiner, of which she was the founding managing editor. And she's served on the faculty of uh, the, the graduate school, uh, graduate program at the School of Visual Arts, uh, and also at Bennington College. And um, my third guest, uh, the writer, critic, and teacher, Michael Brenson, is the author of Visionaries and Outcasts, the NEA Congress, and the Place of the Visual Artist in America, uh, 2001, and Acts of Engagement, Writings on Art, Criticism, and Institutions from 93 to 2002, which was published in 2004. And he's working on a biography of David Smith, to be published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panelists. <laughs> right, and the format of the review panel is simplicity itself. We are examining four exhibitions. What I do is I show a PowerPoint uh, display of uh, some selected images from each show before we discuss it. We discuss a pair of shows in that way. Uh, then we take a little breather while the audience has a chance to let off air with comments and remarks and questions. And then we deal in a similar way with the following two shows. And um, then you let, we let off, you let off steam a little bit more. Okay. Um, how many of you, ladies and gentlemen, managed to see the installation? Oh, wow. That's uh, great. Okay. Good. So... Um, I feel my voice has been heard enough, but I, I'd like us to have, for the benefit of those who didn't see it, just a couple moments more of, a, of a, some description um, of, of, of the, the Kevin Carter story, perhaps, and what it is that we see in The Sounds of Silence. Um, uh, Michael, would you, would you grace us with that? Yeah, there's... Um, can you hear me? Um, <clears throat> so you, I mean, a lot of you, and I know I've seen it, it, there's this kind of huge vault in the back, a big rectangle that's sided with aluminum, I think, right? Aluminum panels, and you come in, and as you saw in the image, there's this sort of burst of light with these fluorescent bulbs. I think they're lines, three lines of 50, so it's a, this tremendous sort of flash and also heat. And then you go around the back, and you saw the, the entrance to it where the, the green 
the green, a green light and a red light, and then you go inside, and uh, it's for the, the inside is very intimate. There's a bench with essentially room enough for, for three people. And the, the video itself is eight minutes, and uh, it's almost entirely words, uh, which is important, the relationship between the, the words and, and the images. And the words really tell the story of, of Kevin Carter, who was uh, uh, a South African, a white South African, born in, in 1960, the year, they say, of the Sharpeville Massacre. And he had, uh, then he was um, conscripted at a certain point had a very difficult time with apartheid, was sort of horrified by it, had a very difficult personal history, with attempted suicide, and then wound up with, in photojournalism, and uh, really found himself in that profession, and through photojournalism was able to really document the, uh, a lot of the atrocities uh, under apartheid. And that led him eventually to, um, to the Sudan, where he took the picture in 1993 that's the core of the installation, which is the famous photograph that wound up on the front page of the New York Times of, uh, of, uh, of a small Sudanese girl. I think she's, she's kneeling, right? And behind her is a vulture. Um, stalking her. Stalking her, right. And, uh, and um, yeah, and then the, 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 just before, in the installation, just before you see that image, and it takes up the entire screen, and you don't see it for very long, there are two flashes, and uh, the flashes go off. So just at the, at the moment, just before the image, there's a moment of blindness. Uh, I mean, this is, I don't know if I'm sort of jumping in, but mm -hmm. a, a blindness that's not only part of the shooting of the image, but a blindness that's built into the experience of the document or the, the, uh, the documentary, the documentary that's fundamental to what, to what Alfredo Jar is, is, uh, is trying to get at. And then you yeah. see the image, and then after that, there are the, uh, there's information about what happened to the image, the way it got caught yes. up finally, bought by Gil yes. Bill Gates, and then got caught up in the whole... Uh, sort of corporate system where it's one among millions of images and finally it gives you the number so that this this image that had an immense impact and was very controversial within the culture uh, is reduced to a number. And and the final thing about the, the narrative of, of Kevin Carter is that uh, the image appeared in 1993. There was a lot of controversy around it. He got a Pulitzer Prize for it, and then he committed suicide in, mm -hmm. in 1995. So it really does try to tell his story. Yes, and that, that information about the, the fact that the image is now uh, belongs to an agency owned by, owned by uh, Bill Gates is, uh, follows after the information that we get that, that Carter took his own life following the um, accusations of his failure to intervene and, and, and help the, the little child um, get to her food bank and to evade the vulture. Um, well, thank you very much, Michael. I sort of, um, you know, the thing about video, one of the things about uh, an installation like that is that one has to give it time, whether you like it or not, to get the narrative. And um, thank you for giving the time and giving us the narrative in a very succinct way. Um, let's, now we know the narrative, um, move on and, and see how, what we make of the uh, way in which, well, what that narrative actually means uh, for us looking at it and what the the, the sculptural conveyance means for us. Um, David, a lot of flashing, isn't there? I mean, uh, a lot of, um, uh, not much imagery for a while, and then uh, a lot of impact on the, on the gaze in the form of, of, of flashlights, of the, the strips of um, 
uh, fluorescent greeting us. What do we make of this kind of radical uh, dichotomy between too much light and, and very little imagery? Well, uh, the whole installation had a kind of aggression to it. I thought that was part of its, the way it con conveyed the message and uh, aggression in a, in a formal sense, which I, I questioned actually that um, the wall of white lights that sort of blinds you as you go in. Also, before you go in, there's those images of the Life magazine covers. So you're, you're prepared for uh, some other uh, images as you go in the back, and instead it's kind of, uh, um, what's the word, gauntlet. You, mm. you pass through these different uh, episodes of light and, um, signage whether you're, you're not supposed to go in if it's red and you go in if it's green and mm -hmm. um, I wondered if that was if the installation ultimately ultimately distracted from the message right he's as he's as trained isn't he Carol as an architect and he's rather proud of not coming out of fine art um, per se uh, jar the Chilean born um, artist whose work often has this um, always has uh, a political, uh, social message, meaning, uh, value. Um, tell us uh, how you responded to the piece. Well, I found it totally poetic. I was very surprised. I am allergic to political art because I feel that it doesn't address the empathy that's available in its audience and the intelligence of its audience. It's usually very... Um, has a single message, a single simplistic message, and depends on the shock value of its subject matter to carry it rather than the art value. So, and I had trouble getting some of my friends to go sit through this because they apparently have the same reaction to black boxes and video that I do. That said, I thought it was marvelous. And, the reason I did was because, you know, with most political art, you can be overwhelmed by negative images, and there's only so much we can take in. He had one image, he used it for a second in its most powerful situation. So we are led into this. This is being, all the words are being typed out very slowly in a way that we can really take it in. And that was so well thought out and effective to me. And the other thing was that there was no blame in this. You understood Kevin Carter, the photographer who wanted to get the shot, and you also understood that he was devoted to these people and would do anything for them. And you understand Bill Gates. You, I mean, you just, it's one of the few political pieces where you really have sympathy for everybody and see them caught up in something bigger than themselves. So that's why I found it extremely powerful, and it stayed with me for a long time in a complex, emotional way, not in an intellectual way. I think it's a... <clears throat> I mean, I think I agree. I think it's a profound work. But, I mean, JAR have, for a long time, has been interested in... The, the power of a certain kind of image, and particularly a photojournalistic image um, in relation to human suffering, and and the power when the power of a certain image is, reaches a certain point, 
were in, instead of leading toward a certain kind of possibility of agency or action in relation to that event becomes a monument in itself and, and actually stops a certain kind of response. So here is this image and it's a really powerful image and the question becomes how do you contextualize something uh, that people look at it and they think they, there's such an excess of meaning that they, um, that they don't need any more information in relation to it. And, uh, and one of the ways he does it is actually to bring the photojournalist into the, into the story. And, and, and it's important because he also uh, treats Kevin Carter in a way that Kevin Carter can't treat the little girl. That if, if, the little, if, if Carter was criticized because he didn't actually pay more attention to the girl, we don't know who she is, we don't even know what happened to her. So he, Jar sets out as an artist to actually call attention to Carter and through Carter to the background uh, and a little bit of the ground of the work and to treat him with a kind of respect and with a kind of humanity uh, that's really not possible otherwise. So that the whole relationship between the treatment of Carter and the relationship of the document and the, and the idea of the of the documentary is really important. And, and also this relationship between word and image because the word creates a, a possibility of, of intimacy, uh, of a kind of narrative in relation to that history and in relation to the person that really doesn't seem possible within the power of, of the kind of image. So that I think there's a kind of um, you know, a relationship or dialogue that's set up between word and image itself or at least a questioning about it that's really uh, really important to the work, but I see it as very much a try to, an attempt to open up the power of the documentary image and, and call attention to its context and make, pe make people question what they see uh, so that what they, what they see doesn't have this kind of absolute finality to it, but it's pushed back into some kind of multitude of, of contextual um, uh, relationships. Yeah. Um. I, I share the panelists' enthusiasm for the, uh, the values that the, the work imparts and the, 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 the way it really has us thinking uh, through this narrative and through this investigation of this particular image. Uh, it has us thinking about images and has us thinking about all the issues that it has us thinking about. Um, my only... Uh, it's not a major caveat, but um, because, I mean, a, a good, rich, strong, thoughtful experience is as much as you want from art, with a capital A meaning any art form. But um, as uh, art with a smaller A, um, I just thought, um, well, I could probably possibly get most of this from a, a nicely written short article in The New Yorker. Um, what, what's, really, what's really, why do I need to be here at Gallery Le Long with this huge box um, and this did I really need to be blinded by that light um, so in other words uh, yeah okay it's 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 a very you know look at the typography it's 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 um, it says uh, political left liberal conscience circa 1970 that the very typography he uses the slightly it's sort of disingenuous if you look at it carefully because the way the letters are cracked means this is from a this is courier font from an old typewriter, but it's not. It's on a computer. So what's does is 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 it just a faint suspicion that maybe the whole kind of moral political agenda of this work 
I'm not denying that the, 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 the value and the power and the potency and the relevance of the, the issue at hand is cool, it's good, I'm, I'm with it. But um, uh, I'm, I am doubting the form of this, this work. It reminds me a little of Joseph Kossuth with his patented typography. But you seem to feel that there is a, a message to this work, and I, I just wonder what you feel that message is. Uh, well, the, it's a complex message. It's not beating me over the head didactically, and that's why I say I like the message. I mean, the message is, as Carol says, more poetic than ideological. It's, uh, it's, it's the, the, the message is that, well, I'm paraphrasing him rather than discerning it from the work, truth be told, but the message which I accept, not, I mean, by the message I mean the, the, uh, the, the plot, whatever, is that... Um, far from being in a culture that's uh, swamped by too many images, there is, in a way, too few images because, um, actually, uh, imagery is controlled centrally um, and uh, we are, we're, we're given lots and lots of uh, pictures but not given uh, as much information as we really need. And that's why, that's why the, 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 the second piece... The, the Time Life, the, the Life magazine uh, covers, is, uh, is very striking. You've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of faces and personalities and people. And, and, but if you look for Africa, which is a significant chunk of the human race and the, the planet, you won't find it on the cover of Life. So it, that's, what it's, that's what I think the message is, that uh, you know, the complication between uh, the number of images that are available, the type of images available, and who controls them. May I disagree? Disagree, yes. What, what, what would you say? Um, I think the difference is between a New Yorker article and this piece is the difference between an intellectual experience and an emotional experience. And the way this is set up, it allows for an ultimate emotional response to this. We can read and read and read and not have the intensity of feeling that this piece conveys. On the other hand, the life covers left me cold. Now, maybe it's because I've worked for Time Magazine on covers for 20 years. And I know what goes into those covers. And those covers are chosen not because they're important, but because it's an image that they think will sell a magazine. And so I think it's a little naive to think that they're going to put an image of the, you know, a really desperate image on a life cover. Well, they could have a smiling Nelson Mandela occasionally. That would help. That would do it. <laughs> um, but David, uh, uh, where do you stand on this element of dissent that I've introduced about um, the, the, the content being stirring and worthy, um, the, the form of its conveyance, yes, appropriate to that content, uh, and, and um, well-crafted, but um, maybe just a little slick. Yeah, I questioned that also. I started questioning it when I saw the piece that was in the side gallery that said why with <clears throat> white letters on black and thought it was a kind of a simplistic idea of color reversal. We get it, you know, white on a black background, having to do with the Africa coverage on the Life magazine covers, but did it need to be so heavy-handed and simplistic in a formal way? Yeah, I agree with you there. But how about the main piece, though? But, um, 
the, the, the sound of silence, the installation. It, yeah, I, I can see everything that works and why it works. You need the red and the green light because it's important to get the narrative from beginning to end the way Jar wants you to read it. Uh, I, I can see uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't require Panofsky's I, skills and iconology to decode what being blinded by a great bank of fluorescent light strips means in an installation about imagery and seeing. Okay, get it all, but uh, I, I think you underestimate, I mean, we're all writers, I think we're underestimating the power that language can have in a beautifully crafted, beautifully written, poetic uh, article in the, the, in the New Yorker. I come back to really wondering why we need a big steel box and to be blinded by light and to stand uncomfortably and to read uh, this narrative in this cracked Korea font. I just, I just think that... Um, I mean, the work is complex, and the questions that it raises are complex, and and it is, uh, you know, as Carol mentioned, there's a very strongly experiential dimension to it, and uh, you know, sort of being in that room and and just the visual, the visual experience, the timing of, because on one level, the work is very, very simple, uh, but the questions, I feel like it's a work that we could keep talking about for a week and kind of really never get to the bottom of it. And these questions about the image and the question about what happens when, the, when these powerful images are actually taken, uh, both in the, the, in the moment, the sort of complex moment of the shooting itself, but also, um, I mean, the question that it raises about the relationship between empathy and distance that's built into photojournalism, this extraordinary kind of empathy that Jar felt for the situation and the girl, and at the same time, a kind of manipulative, exploitative distance where he's sitting there for a half hour and he's waiting for the perfect image, so the image for, for the image to become, so that the image could become a symbol. So how then, in photojournalism and in the experience of the image, does this relationship between empathy and distance you know, finally get affected? I mean, these are profound questions to me about image making, and, and I think that they can only be communicated within a kind of image world, within an experiential a climate, that if you actually wrote an article on this in a New Yorker or in, the, or in a, any kind of magazine, you simply couldn't get people to actually experience the, the force of, or the complexity of what this, actual, what this situation is about. Well, uh, is it, I mean... But you, you said, and I agree with you, that at, at a basic level, the, 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 the formal visual structure is in, incredibly simple. And, and David, in fact, Like the image itself. That it, that it mm -hmm. was a bit simplistic. Now, I, when you say we could talk for a week, we would talk for a week about all the political and moral and uh, uh, iconographical issues of the, the story, as it were, that Jar is recounting the story of Carter and his photograph and his suicide and the ownership of that photograph. I doubt we'd be talking for a whole week about the uh, structure that Jar created for us to be looking at it. We we get you know we'd have to really have to, a deep discussion about where you get your fluorescent light strips. I mean, would we really be talking about the formal structure that long? No, but I think we would be talking about the 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 the, the issues that that he raises. Uh we be talking about, about it. Hmm? We be talking about yes, the issues. Yes, but I, I know it. But I just I'm, all I'm saying is that I think that the, those issues would keep opening up. But would they open up as a result of the uh, experiential formal structure set up in Gallery Lalong with this piece? Yes. Yeah. The formal structure is the support. 
Mm. It doesn't necessarily need to be the object of discussion. If it does its job, you're almost not aware of it. Ah, like a good waiter in a restaurant. <laughs> not exactly. Ah. <clears throat> okay. Well, one can certainly see some formal um, uh, continuity or contiguity maybe with the previous show in the sense of, um, again, we've got um, big steel boxes with stuff happening inside it. Um, and again, uh, we've got a primary black or grey as the as the, the colour of choice. Uh, but then, uh, uh, then I think we'd find we're in remarkably different sort of territory. Um, David, perhaps I could ask you in, in this just to, to kick us off on this one. Um, uh, what did you make of of Armajani? Well, I was thrilled to see Armajani going into this. Um, new direction because I've always admired his architectural, more architectural type works in completely abstract sculptural forms and he seems to be moving in this kind of, I, I, I hesitate to say surrealist direction, but he was inspired by Giacometti's palace at 4 a.m. and I thought that each, all, all of the sculptural pieces had a had an evocative air about them that was um, sort of pushing Giacometti's vision further or maybe closer to our time. I was also impressed by the paintings. He's returned to painting recently and I thought they were beautifully executed and the compositions were intriguing and I wish I had had more time to stay with them. Um, I thought altogether it was a pretty impressive show. Yeah, there is another sort of commonality between Jar and Armajani, and that's that um, uh, both have this architectural element, not just to the forms they create, the structures that they, they generate, but also to their uh, uh, backgrounds and careers, in that uh, Armajani is best known in the world as a, a public uh, artist and, and a creator of, of, of rather ambitious um, commissioned public works. So this shows him, uh, maybe Carol, in a, in a, in a more... Um, Quixotic, personal, poetic mode because he's making uh, a smaller, slightly more intimate works for a, a gallery type um, space. What did you make of those of the of the content of, of of those those structures? How did you relate to the way in which one was able to look in, prevented from going in with the, with those three pieces? It's a little passive aggressive. It draws you in and then keeps you out because everything is completely glassed in. But I don't think it was the glassed-in part that keeps you out. I think that the, the thing that kept me out the most was the newness and the antiseptic quality of the installation and the structure. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of like a shop class um, project. It was all new and not refined in any way or not rough in any way. It was very clean and sterile. And especially, and then the symbolism seemed to me to be very heavy-handed and very obvious. Like when I learned about symbolism in, when I was a sophomore in high school and I would be excited about seeing, you know, oh, the raven, that's Poe. But I think that we're beyond, oh, the steps. There were steps that had um, glass in them and there were other steps 
that were um, saw blades. And this seems to me to just be really obvious. And I had been a couple years ago to the Emerson House in Concord, and that's a marvelous experience. And you go there and you are subsumed with Emerson. You feel like you've met him. And this was almost like cardboard cutouts of of Emerson, so it but so strikingly so that might it might, might it have been intentional? Might that have been the purpose and the value, Michael? The purpose and value of of uh, maybe that that the the coldness, <coughs> the sterility, the newness is not um, is not simply a failing on Armajani's part, but in fact integral to to the the image that he's creating. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I I I thought the Giacometti reference was was really interesting, David, and yet I wondered where that Palace at 4 a.m. is a work that's so much about a certain kind of delicacy and fantasy, and I really wondered where the fantasy space was in the work. I wondered, because these works are really, they're really extreme, um, and, and I also, I'm interested in what you think, because I think of Armajani, both in terms of public art, uh, so that there's there's usually some kind of participatory element. No, let me just just finish. Participatory element, and these works are completely sealed off, so that so that you can't get in. They really works so that are made for a gallery. But I also wondered. I think there was always something of a utopian uh, dimension, uh, some kind of real belief in democracy that that drove Armajani, and these works, they seem extreme uh, in many ways, both the hard edge quality, the, the blades that keep you from getting in, the doors that are, that are, that are barricaded or blocked off, and in that, the, the one-car garage, there's, you've got the exhaust pipe sort of running through, uh, even though it's not inside, from one side to the other, and then you've got this electric cord inside that's, that, that's like a noose. Hmm. So that you've got it. It's it's kind of death-ridden in a, um, in an interesting way. It's and, dark. And yes. Yeah, it's dark. I mean, there's a the stairs you couldn't possibly climb because they're so uh, skewed. No, totally. And the spaces in it are, are really sort of wedged in. And there's an overall sense of uninhabitability and the sleeping loft and, where you'd hit and your a, head. That's right. Hmm. And and abandonment. I mean, it, there's hmm. always a sense that throughout it. There's a sense that someone was here. Uh, you know, there's a hat, there's a cane, there's shoes, there's a mattress, but then that nobody could be here. Uh, that somehow these places are really uninhabitable. So there's some notion of homelessness that that he's referring to. Some um, some way. I mean, there's no. Everything is private and public, and nothing is private and public. And there's some odd way in which he turn. He makes the interior of the gallery seems sure. like an outside. And it's and, and angled in such a way that it becomes very difficult to negotiate. Uh, jutting That's edges right. around them, uh, but I, this is still very public work. That uh, mm. even though there is a certain intimacy, I mean, I immediately had a sort of positive response because I, I love. And they seemed in a way like, I mean, uh, completely not with any of that fragility that you valued in Giacometti, but couldn't help thinking a little of Joseph Cornell boxes. But thinking if a Cornell box was blown up to this scale, it would lose any of the the distressed quality and gain what uh, Carol noticed in that uh, anodyne, uh, crystalline quality, but um, or anesthetized quality. But I, I thought this was theatrical uh, in a good sense. This is these was stage sets from not not utilizable stage sets, but they were uh, imaginative stage sets from a kind of uh, theatre of the absurd in some way. 
Well, it was totally theatrical, and he said in the press release or somewhere that this show was supposed to be about being on the outside, looking in, mm -hmm. as opposed to his, early, you know, his earlier, more public works. So that is the premise of the show, yes. and you have to accept that to a certain degree in order not only to look at the sculptures but to look at the paintings. And in in a way, I thought that the as monumental as the sculptures were, they led you to the paintings in a really extraordinary way. And as far as the fantasy space goes that Michael mentioned in reference to Giacometti, I thought in Armagnani it has to do with the materials mm -hmm. and the textures. I, I thought that he, the spaces he left open in the um, sculptures were really fantastic, especially where the part where the um, wheat uh, shafts of wheat are coming out into the, the space of the gallery. It just allows you that glimpse of a connection between our reality and this other reality that Ar Armagnani was constructing within these containers. So, Carol, if the individual symbols were too heavy-handed and obvious and sophomoric, <laughs> what was the uh, heavy-handed, obvious, sophomoric message of the, of the work? I didn't really understand what I was supposed to be getting from it, and that's not a place I want to be. I want to have a direct experience. I don't want to sit there and try and figure out what's supposed to be happening. And to me, it was like a vitrine, um, like things on display in a store window. It was a new hat. There's a new mattress. And when I think of other people who have done environments like... Keenholtz and Kabakov, for instance, or even George Siegel, the way he built these environments, which were new for his figures, they had much more resonance. They seemed to, to feed the whatever symbolism is going on um, better. But all three artists you've mentioned there um, work with distressed surfaces, which are always going to entice a certain empathy. Uh, is it not possible to, to, to have clean, hard, abrasive surfaces and, and for it still somehow to work poetically? It seems strange to, to have such a, 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 such a, a demarcation between soft and hard be the determinant as to whether uh, symbolism can work. Also, it seems odd, Carol, that on the one hand, you, you, you're annoyed at the symbols for being too obvious, and on, on the other hand, you're aggravated by the totality for not being obvious enough. No. No. Oh, you mean what I'm going to get out of the whole thing? Yes. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> not, not to put you on the spot, but I no, I, no, I, mean, but I, I mean, I want I, you to defend your position. I really don't want to be in the position of a guessing game when I'm looking at art. I really go for what I said before about the jar. I'm looking for something experiential, and that just didn't happen with this. It seemed to me to be a game of figuring out what the symbols were and what they meant as separate symbols rather than one full experience. Well, he's, I mean, in a way he's dealing with, <clears throat> in, it's Emerson's parlor, right? Uh, and with Poe, it's like there's a, there's a bedroom space there and, uh, and there's the one car garage so that you're actually dealing with images, um, architectural images that have a certain domestic personal quality to them that are being stripped then of, uh, of a certain kind of intimate relationship or, or even an intimate possibility. So it seems to me there's some 
kind of deep questioning mm -hmm. of, uh, of the meaning of these kinds of spaces now. And I think this relationship between private and public is, I mean, it's an interesting question for me. If there's neither private nor public, then sort of, you know, what is it? I mean, what kind of space is it that, that he thinks we're living, we're living in? And, and if these spaces that we've kind of depended on have has, had a certain value, but uh, in some ways they're stripped of, of, of some kind of larger possibility, then, then how do we think about them? And, and I wonder with Emerson and Poe, are these like the two poles of of like American thought or literature mm -hmm. because they're the literary references here and and certainly Emerson is the more upbeat sort of more optimistic one and and uh, and Poe is the is the, the dark the, the darker one the heavier one and and uh, you know in a way I can't completely articulate I feel like there's some kind of battle well, going on yeah. in the in this work that both within him and and through him what he sees uh, what he's thinking about American culture yeah, I mean, not. I mean, the work should be a self-contained thing in itself, but nonetheless, uh, those two extremes, as, as you identify them, uh, would relate to, to um, Armajani's larger project, which throughout his career has been to celebrate and then, with a piece like Fallujah, question uh, American idealism and American democracy. So, with uh, Poe and uh, Emerson, we are getting, as you as you correctly say, I think. Uh, the, the dark and the light side, the, the, the different extremes of um, um, the transcendental and the, the fearful. Um, I, I, I just liked it. I, I, I liked the individual things in these works, and uh, it just generated a, a mood which was unspecific, which for me is uh, vastly superior to having uh, a very clear agenda and, and, and boxes to check on a form as I leave to, to check that I've got the message. But I, maybe Carol and I just go for different things in art, which is uh, the way it should be. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we've looked at two shows there, uh, Jar and Armajani. Um, mediums, messages, boxes, glass, steel, light. Um, let's hear what you think of them. And let's, uh, uh, and, and if perhaps we've, we've uh, probe us, if you feel let down that we failed to make some connection between them or deal with them. If you just wait for the mic, uh, it's going to come your way. Gentleman there, great. Hi, I'm Michael. Is that on? It is. I have to talk into it. Okay. My name is Michael Norton, and I just wanted to talk about the genre and your feelings about uh, the ownership of images that he talked about with uh, Microsoft owning some Bill Gates Foundation, owning, owning so much of the information that's out there uh, in cyberspace now. And uh, that, along with the light, the... Um, the imposition that he put us through to actually take a look at this thing. I wasn't as, and, and I think we talked so much about this image that he showed us that that image was only there for a split second and there was so much more involved in the experiential part of looking and feeling that piece and about the information he was giving us and you didn't really talk about uh, the ownership of imagery, which I think it was a real point he was trying to make. Mm. I'd like to know if he paid for that image. Um, yes, good, good question. Um, Actually, I know that um, he he did pay for that image. Okay, it was good. something like two thousand dollars for a single use, um, and I guess he because it comes on for such a short time, 
mm -hmm. it doesn't add up to you know whatever the the time limit is. <laughs> um, but I would also like. My name is Nina Felshin, and I would also like to comment on the formal structure of the Sound of Silence, which I think no one has uh, mentioned. But I think that that structure was intended to feel like you were inside a camera, and that the and the sense of clicking an image. You have one second to click an image, and then you have framed this image. And I think this, I think for me, this piece was very much about framing an image. Um, Alfredo did a piece very early on in the 80s called The Power of Words. And I think this has always been a very important thing for him that um, an image on its own does not really mean anything. And I think he's trying to develop a very broad frame for that image. I think the other thing is that there's a tendency and the controversy around uh, that image really had to do with why didn't he save this little girl? And I think that kind of limits a conversation. The conversation should really be about, and I think this would this is something that I think Alfredo would probably agree with. It's if you limit it to just this little girl, you're you're not talking about the system that created the situation that this little girl was in. And um, I think that in a way, Kevin Carter was trying to do something much bigger than, um, you know, than take this a picture of a little of a victim. I think this was not just about this individual victim; it was about a much bigger story. Um, okay. Well, that's I mean, there's a the way in which that he's got that concern. He did it with with Rwanda as well, which is why the images somehow don't lead back to the to the to the war or to the actual larger atrocity that there becomes, there's a tendency through these images to identify in a personal way, uh, you know, with the, with the personal, uh, with what's going on within, with the individual, within the image, and, and how does that happen? And, and, and he's always asked that question of, how do you get beyond that? And, and, uh, and why, since there was so much concern about this particular girl, and the one quote that Al, that Jar uses in the work is about the woman accusing him uh, in relation to the girl of being as predatory, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in relation to the girl as the vulture of being himself like a vulture. So that's what he chose to to emphasize and to to lead it back and to to provide a larger context because context is never provided by the image itself. And in relation, I mean, I think it's interesting, Nina, what you say about the camera, um, and it makes me think about the flash themselves because it produces this, this blindness before and in a way after or built into the image, but it also makes us, it's like a portrait of us, right? I mean, because it's what, what a portrait photographer would use, so as we're looking at it, the flash goes off in our faces, so, and there's the implication in that certainly that what, what, how, whatever we do, however we experience it, is going to be our portrait. That we that we are sort of complicit with the situation if we don't do anything about it beyond just feeling sorry for this mm. little girl. Right, right, great. Uh, some lady in the front, if you come towards the front. I just wanted to comment on the idea that you could read this somewhere and it would be the same. And the way the words are presented, the timing, and the idea that even though it's 
what's the title? Something about silence? Sounds of silence. Sounds of silence. That there's a lot of sound or staccato in the way the words are presented, not as a complete sentence, but Kevin, Kevin Carter, mm -hmm. the repetition. Mm -hmm. It builds up some kind of quality of sound in that that adds to the piece that I wouldn't get from just reading rows of no, words. No, if you were reading an article, you wouldn't get that specific formal device. You get other specific formal devices germane to writing. So my point isn't that, that he's completely a-visual and has no sense of space or form, because certainly he does. He's a very accomplished creator of uh, sculptural environments. I'm just saying that, actually, of course, I mean, if you, whatever medium you use, you're going to use the medium. I'm just saying that actually a medium that could really explore the philosophical and political complexities that Michael has identified and is interested in would be um, more driven and uh, by, 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 a, by a text piece on this issue than by a uh, work of visual art. The difference is between not an article, but an article and a poem. For instance, the book that I found, I didn't see the film, but the book that really brought a lot of what happened in the Holocaust home to me was The Reader. And it's very oblique. And it's very poetic. And it doesn't hit you with a lot of facts. It hits you in a very emotional way. And you understand the participants. You understand all of them. You don't like what it adds up to. But you understand how it happened in a very visceral way. And I think this is much more like a novel and a poem. And what you get out of it is what you might get out of a novel and a poem and not an article that comes to you in a very intellectual way. I think I really like what you say. Because there, there's something in the, in the, in the, in the Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Carter, and sometimes the word Kevin is repeated. That's there's a mode of address in it that you actually do hear. It's a kind of imploring, almost, or a kind of speech, beseeching, uh, on the part of the artist to the uh, to this photographer who's no longer around, who who actually suffered a great deal himself uh, in the course of his work, and 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 it actually reads as something you hear it as as an address beyond beyond Kevin Carter to the person, or through, you know, almost becomes a medium to the, to the actual person in the room. And it's interesting to me because it's a rhetorical device, but it works. It's really effective. There are rhetorical devices in any art form. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we'll take one or two quick more, more comments. Um, I'm kind of in tune with what David said because when you, uh, the, the, you, the word came up, apartheid. I'm thinking of a book by J.M. Coetzee. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, the Life and Times of Michael Kay. And as I read that book, which wasn't very long, it, was, it became more and more unbearable by the accumulation of uh, detail. And uh, what started happening in my mind was more visual than I could even stand. So uh, sometimes that's uh, a method that really uh, conveys it uh, very em emphatically. Okay, uh, a lady at the, in the back left, and then I think we'll call it a day of the audience, <coughs> yeah. Not to um, continue to harp on the, f the formalism of Alfredo Yard, but just two quick sort of questions. 
I think, oh, sorry. Okay. Um, I wondered if some of the discussion about his um, tendency to be so formal would be, um, if it's maybe related to the, bo the, the box and the way he uses it, and maybe the, they seem interchangeable, like they don't always necessarily seem completely essential to each project, and like you could take you know, the, the light boxes and make them larger and habitable, and then you could use them for the, the, the silence piece. Um, and I wondered if you could address that. Um, and also, I wondered, there seems to be um, a willingness to accept Yar in relation to um, Armanjani as more political, or like it seems like the conversation about there has been more political when we talk about Jar, but less about Armanjani. And like, I, I wondered if you could sort of talk about that because there, to me, there sort of seemed to be some implication um, about uh, our, the, the the past three years and the relationship with, with, with the government to the Hurricane Katrina and. I wondered if you could talk about that. Well, well um, I think you've talked about it, so thank you very much. I mean, <laughs> we, we could start again and talk about those two issues because those are the two big, strong, good issues you should be moderating. But, um, well, it's interesting that in relation to um, both Armajani and Jar, we've um, teased out a little bit uh, issues of um, integration between um, the, the, thought, the thoughts in and behind the work and the... Uh, rhetorical and formal devices used to convey them. Um, we get, Carol, if I could start with you, a very, um, perhaps we're treated to a very uh, uh, sensual exploration in these works. Um, did you feel that you were primarily in the presence of uh, skill and effects or uh, compelling and suggestive images? Um, none of the above. Uh, I felt that the work was very, in a way, surface, very glossy. Um, it didn't convey the mood that I wanted. I'm a big fan of Ross Blechner, and, um, and he's been compared to Ross Blechner a lot. And I feel that Blechner really does create a mood, and there's depth, and there's a, a kind of intensity and energy, and and uh, frustration in Blechner that I didn't, this was very smooth, very glossy, everything is the same value, everything is centered. Um, so it didn't, it didn't carry me. And I'm, and I'm also really into the idea of image as abstraction, which is I think a wonderful thing when it's done well. But for me it seemed, uh, it seemed a little superficial. Yes. Um uh, Michael, I, I don't know if it's, um, I mean, it's an interesting strategy to, to go prepared with a comparison of one artist to another and then gauge your disappointment or, or, or satisfaction <laughs> from that comparison. But uh, uh, I'm trusting you went without comparisons and, <laughs> and have formulated a, an opinion. <clears throat> um. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's hard to, there's, there's, there's a bit of Blechner in them. It's hard for me to compare them because it's such a different moment and that whole sort of elegiac quality that, that Blechner's paintings have seems quite alien to, to, to this artist and to the particular moment. I have 
some resistance to the paintings as well. I do think there's a, I mean, there's some formulaic quality to the way they're constructed. Uh, mm -hmm. They are, there is this sort of, there is a centralized imagery and, and there is uh, that everything, it's a very hieratic kind of structure and, and it feels a little bit predictable. And then there's the relationship between the impasto paint, um, which has a, often a scatological element to it and a, and, uh, and a slightly you know, thinner paint. Um, and I'm not sure, I think there are a lot of questions that these paintings could ask about a glut of images and the way in which this culture runs together uh, you know, high and low, and pop and Hollywood and modernism and, and religion. And it's not a question that's particularly interesting to me. Uh, mm -hmm. But they, where I started to get interested um, a little bit is that I, there's, there's a tone in those works um, that I actually, I started to feel a certain kind of disgust almost within the work. Not, not in me, but in the, in the artist or a certain some kind, something that felt almost like a kind of revulsion and, and uh, about these kinds of images and the way they play together and what's going on uh, with them in the world. And I felt in the drawings too, because the drawings are very different. Uh, there's a very different relationship to making. There's a very different relationship between the image and the paper. Um, and I don't know how far he could actually go with that. And, that, and I'm not even sure that I'm right about this revulsion that felt also somewhat puritanical to me. Even though there's something very seductive in the images, I felt there was the, something almost the reverse that was happening. And that sort of feeling in relation to, the, you know, to this particular moment, and I mean, if it's true and some kind of ability to give that form, that would be interesting mm -hmm. to me. I must say I was completely flummoxed as to the intentions of these works. Um, it did seem to me that I was in the presence of some, some degree of um, skill and um, some, some kind of investment in uh, the images, but I didn't know whether the investment from the artist was sort of um, deconstructive or emotional, whether, whether he... Uh, uh, liked what he was painting or held it in disdain. I, I mean, the, the, it seemed he ought to take us one way or the other, but I didn't. I just didn't know whether he um, despised or was elated by um, the the imagery and the process of making the imagery. Mm. Uh, and yet, it does seem to me in the drawings in particular that um, I mean, I, I hate any discussion of art that divorces uh, skill from image because um, skill that's autonomous of image. Is, is spurious unless it's skill per se that's being in some way deconstructed. But um, just in the sheer sort of bewildered pleasure that one would take and the way a banknote is engraved, uh, it was impossible not to look at the uh, ink works on paper without uh, having some sensation of um, a sort of intent of labor intensity and, and skill investment. But Intentions. What, 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 David? Do you have, a, do you have a sense of what he's, what is intended in these works? I, I think his intention is probably close to what Blechner's is. It's a kind of meditative space with, with iconography that melds Persian miniatures and rugs and such with Western abstract painting. And I think sometimes he's successful and sometimes not. I thought there was one 
very well realized painting called Supreme Elevation Two. That was the mm -hmm. yellow one with the eagle mm. in the center. And that's where everything seemed to pull together and he had the textures were, were beautiful and he had the color sense was in balance and such. But I thought that too often he tripped himself up with trying to maybe do too much. Do you think there's, is, is, is the, I detected a kitsch element. Now, is that just my subjective reading or is it part of his program? Nobody's afraid of kitsch any longer. He, he, <laughs> he was probably aiming for that and hoping you would say that. Yeah, but, but why does he want me to say that? Um, because uh, these are works that are not to be uh, isolated as the kind of hermetic art uh, object that's apart from from our culture, consumer culture, and even pop art. You know, there's mm -hmm. a kind of very a lot of humor in the drawings that relates to to pop art in some way. I don't think he's not lo looking at. I don't think he's looking at these to be uh, kind of perfect artworks that are, you know, like Mondrian or something. But does, like does that um, embrace of kitsch sit comfortably with your stated twin ambitions to reconcile a kind of um, uh, Eastern mysticism and abstract art? Uh, I, I'd have thought those are on very different, in very different places. Well, also you have to remember he's young. I felt in some ways this was a transitional show. I think he hasn't really formed his vision yet. We'll have to wait and see with him. I, I felt I agree. I don't, I don't think um, that he's trying to reconcile that. And I'm, if it is, I don't think it's very, I don't think it's a really interesting direction. And I, don't, I also don't think the, uh, that ambivalence right now about whether to like it or not like it, uh, you know, or sort of whether between the, the how to think about the, the sacred and the profane or whatever, I just, I don't think you can sort of go places with that. I, I, I wonder if you can, and if he's interested in like creating another symbolic language out of this, uh, out of this kind of particular um, combination that he's working with whether that's an interesting question. I wonder, too, whether the notion of the visionary now, what it is to... I mean, these are at least questions that started to have some kind of impact for me it was as I was looking at them. Like, what does it mean? What is a vision now for an artist, for a painter, for anyone? Or what does it mean to, to be a visionary you know, at this particular moment in time, given the kind of surfeit of images that from every different direction? And whether, whether you want to build from that... Um, and actually produce some kind of new language. And I'm not sure, sort of, David, that there is a, that it, it, feels, it feels like a moment where he's still like figuring. There's some things I feel he's very sure about, but I feel like the larger questions of the work really haven't been worked out at all yet. I agree. So Michael, this is an artist who's very well known. When we think of her, we think of horses first, I think. And it's taken uh, dismembered mannequins to get flesh out of her. There's even a painting there called <coughs> Flesh. Um, but her very, her very language, um, her, her painterly um, uh, uh, facture, her touch, um, in some ways is, makes her one of those artists uh, who put you in mind of de Kooning's dictum that uh, oil paint was the reason flesh, excuse me, flesh was the reason oil paint was invented. 
Um, <clears throat> question mark. I think. All right. Okay. I can jump in on that. I because I. Um, well, first of all, there is a like there, there's a smell of the oil paint in there. There's a kind mm. of like juicy sort of richness uh, that actually I found quite welcome being mm. in the gallery, being around them. I don't feel it that often, uh, and there is a certain relation to paint and painting. Uh, I've always liked her work. I mean, going back a long time, it is it's a question of degree. I've always been interested in her doubt, which. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I think all four of these artists sort of doubt in different ways, and and hers is the most existential for me because it's the one that's built most into the into the process itself. And I I think over the years she's fought her actual practice. I think she's had doubts about her way of proceeding, but these works seem the most comfortable that I've seen by her. I think it almost feels like she's made some kind of peace. Uh, with a practice, and as a, as a result, it gives them a, a, um, something of a feeling of mastery that I'm not, or at least I think mm -hmm. it helps explain the the masterly quality that the paintings have. I, uh, I mean, I'm interested in them a lot of ways. I'm always interested in her relationship between the figure and the ground, the way the figure seems to come out of the ground, but there's this incommensurability between the figure and the ground, and then I wonder what this ground is really about, and then I wonder as a writer, how do I find language for that? I felt like the imagery was a little bit different here. There was almost like an old, an Eastern European workshop quality of these of the puppet maker and the dressmaker uh -huh. and the shoemaker that there was Kleist something that there was something coming out of her memory uh, that seemed quite Jewish to me and, and Eastern European or old Europe mm. in a in another time and it was suspended here in some kind of uh, really interesting way. But the, the question that I that that I ask for for you all, uh, I feel like the process, she's kind of got a process here, a way of, of dealing with the ground, a way of making the gesture, a way in which the figure emerges from the gesture making, and then she determines how far to go with the figure. And I wonder if these paintings are all that they need to be, and I wonder if she's going to turn the screw like two or three more times, what does that mean? And yeah. I think the way in the which she she does it here is through color. And, uh, but I, I wonder, and yet I wonder myself, because I think there's this notion of sufficiency or this issue of sufficiency or adequacy that's always been part of her work that's get raised in different ways. So I just wonder mm -hmm. whether the works are everything that they want to be or whether there's something in them that needs to be a little bit more. Perhaps I, I always sense that, that her... Her success, both on the canvas and in the art world, has to do with a balancing between uh, painterliness and doubt. Um, and I, I think with, with this artist I'm inescapably always uh, reminded of, and therefore wonder whether it's integral to the work itself, reminded of the, the late paintings of Philip Guston. I mean, you, usually one doesn't need to worry too much about uh, influence or where a style comes from, and yet it's so gustony, uh, this, this sort of doubt-ridden, painterly, these marks, and also Johnsian, the way the, mark, the, the, the paint is put down, that it's both a kind of, ex it's expressivity. Actually, John's more than uh, uh, Guston in a way, because the expressivity is, is in big, heavy quotes. The, the marks are put down, but they don't feel like they're coming as Guston's do, they don't feel like they're uh, 
hardwired to the soul. Carol, do you, do you, do you share my uh, feeling on that? I have... Um, see, I wanted you to end with jars so I'd come off on a positive note. Um, I feel like I came in the, in the middle with Susan Rothenberg when I came to New York. As a young painter, she was already very revered, so I didn't really... I wasn't in on the beginning of it, and I never was terribly interested in horse imagery, so I sort of just accepted Susan Rothenberg is there and that's all good and I never anticipated that I would have to explain all this. Um, so I found this actually rather bland. I found it lacking in atmosphere and energy and the idea of a marionette is very distant to me. It's maybe something from my mother's generation. It's um, I guess I think of Hans Bellmer and the disassociate, you know, the um, dismembered dolls or whatever, but it doesn't have a kind of cultural resonance right now and isn't explicated enough to tell me why she's doing it. Now, um, Angela Westwater did tell me that she doesn't know why she's doing these images, and I am a strong proponent of not having to know why you're doing an image. And I cannot explain why I do the images I do often. But I didn't feel that intensity, that commitment that I wanted. And uh, even though the paint surface can be beautiful, it, it's, it's, I want it to be in the service of, of something more. Hmm. Yeah, David, uh, uh, doubt and investment. Um, images that uh, are, are deeply meaningful, images that are arbitrary. We were always told by... Uh, Rothenberg, that the horse, she had no interest whatsoever in horses, uh, she just needed something to paint, rather like a, a sort of John's flag. Uh, is she invested in these marionettes? No. <laughs> I, I made the mistake of going to see Rothenberg's show right soon after the Bonard show at the Met. And so <laughs> I thought, this is not it. There's the can't, the there's not much going on on those surfaces. I have to admit, I've had trouble with her work since the horses, so I didn't think this marionette idea is going to pull me in much further. But um, I had a feeling that she's grasping for something that isn't there. Maybe it's mm -hmm. it would would be there, but I but they but I felt that the color relationships were not engaging the. Uh, Surfaces were, I have to agree with Carol, dull. And um, I'm sorry, mm. Susan. I know a lot of people just revere her work, and I never understood the lavish praise for mm. her being put in the company of Gustin and Johns. I don't think so. Just a desperate need, maybe, for a younger and a, a woman artist who would join those ranks? And when I, when, uh, <coughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, okay. I'll wait as long as you like. No. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I first saw her work, uh, which is going back a while, I, those things, those, those horses, and also the heads, the sort of the heads and the hands, they really, they, they got into my head, and they also got into my dreams. Um, so the relationship, in a way that very few, very few images that I'd seen have, even, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to get in a comparison with Gustin, who we know is a great artist for what he is, but those, those Paintings for Rothenberg did they? They had an impact that very few things, paintings that I've seen over the last thirty years have. So, and I think they're. Uh, 
And I think that they still have that. I don't know whether the stakes of these images are really as high mm -hmm. as before. Uh, I do feel there is something about, particularly the hands of the marionettes that started to get on my nerves. But I felt that the actual, the play of the actual hands in relation to the marionette hands was an interesting one. There's one painting in which the hands are like pig's feet. They're so sort of weird and, and freaky. And then there are two paintings that you showed, one the indigo painting, mm -hmm. and then the painting, I think the master, where you see the head behind uh, like these, these yellow green arms. And I, I thought those paintings were quite mm. extraordinary. And, and I felt that, that those were paintings I could really live with. Yeah, I'm, I'm a kind of agnostic with Rothenberg um, because uh, there, there's stuff there that I like and there's, there's um, intentions there that I half like. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, um, I, I really like to know whether, I mean, and Michael talked about the screw turning. Is it turning in the direction of letting the, the doubt and the uh, intellectual, little bit of intellectual pretentiousness slip away and just enjoy paint and invest in, in the images? Or is it actually back in, in the direction of, uh, you know, the big quote marks around everything I do and the questioning the medium of painting? What is the intellectual pretentiousness? What are you referring to? The intellectual pretentiousness is this a basic sort of attitude that has always been in her career of um, wanting to paint but accepting the uh, generational avant-garde suspicion of and doubt about painting and therefore needing to uh, very radically question the medium. Uh, and that comes across in... Um, the, the, the kind of anti-iconography of the horse, which was, you know, with its arbitrary choice and her not being interested in, in horses. Um, and it comes, she sure is now. And it comes, well, she, yeah, she's moved to Montana <laughs> and she's, she's found some horses. But that's what I mean. I mean, it's, it's the same going to happen to um, painting as happened to the horse. But she loves painting. I mean, she's always loved painting. That, that's completely evident in what she does. No, I mean, it, because uh, she, I mean... I, I, I think she likes painting. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because how, how, do you, I mean, how do you measure someone's love for painting? I mean, you, it's only our own love for what she does that is the, that is the barometer of whether that love was meaningful. And um, uh, I'm not going to compare her to Guston or to Bonnard. I'll take the works on their own terms. Um, I kind of like them. But I'm always, every mark that goes down has this kind of as ifness. I'm painting as if I'm invested in painting. And there's never actually a full gutsy uh, investment in any mark. And my feeling is that that's intentional, and it's intentional because of what I identify as certain generational intellectual pretensions, her fear and doubt about painting. <laughs> There's a conversation <clears throat> A projection of my own. The ladies in the audience says it sounds like a projection. So it's a projection of my own sense that she must have a doubt about painting. I should just let my inhibitions go and take her painting on its own terms. Yes. That seems reasonable. I could live with that, except... <laughs> the, except I would then go away with the feeling that, oh dear, she's only half there. My feeling is, I feel I'm being generous to her by saying she's only half there intentionally. 
Well, do keep in mind, like her generation, right? Because that was historically that a generation. Her of generation early, and her milieu. The generation of the early 70s where they were coming in in, in America after the minimalist mm. conceptual art. Her generation and her milieu, because there are people of her age who don't have her hang-ups. Hang-ups. So let's not. I, look, I don't. I don't see your hang-ups. I don't. I actually don't know what you're talking about there. <laughs> but, uh, but I do think she came. She came in at a moment where, where there were a lot of questions about pa- painting, particularly if you, if you saw yourself within a, a certain kind of tradition. I give you that, and and those questions were there. And painting had to prove itself. And and I think her ability to actually produce these paintings that really were paintings that had a, a good deal of power in terms of the iconography and the way they were painting. You know, given, I mean, that's also the Elizabeth Murray, sort of Lois, Lois Lane. I mean, a lot of people in the mid-70s. And, Jennifer and, Bartlett. Yes, Jennifer Bartlett, absolutely. Denise so, Green. So I, I, I think that there, when you talk about, I mean, I don't think there's really any ambivalence or diffidence there, but, but there is a continuous belief sort of that you have to, you have to prove yourself and you have to justify what you're doing and that there's mm-hmm. nothing about painting itself that can be taken for granted. And that's why the, these paintings seem a little bit different for me because I think she's found a kind of peace. Well, let's go to Carol medium. and David and ask them if they feel that the inadequacy that they sense in the painting is just that, uh, some personal inadequacy of this particular artist, or whether it's because of what I've, ident- what I've tried to identify as, um, as a, sort of a, a split intention about painting. I didn't, in, I didn't mean that they're inadequate. I think the problem with them is that, is that they're adequate. They're nothing, to me, they were nothing beyond Well, them. adequate is inadequate when we're talking about art. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no? Yes. Yes, Carol. So why is she inadequate? Just because she hasn't got the chops? Or is it because, is it because of, uh, there's a philosophical or political or something going on that prevents this breakthrough? I think only she can answer that. (laughs) You don't think it might be in the work? I really don't like getting involved with the artist's intention. Guessing the artist's intention, knowing the artist's intention, to me it's all about the work and what I get from the work. And yeah, maybe she's in doubt. Maybe she's totally confident. I don't know. Yeah, but there's one kind of questioning about intention where you pick up the phone and ask the artist, come on, dear, what are you trying to do? <laughs> There's another kind of question about intention, which is the intentionality implicit in the work. And, uh, you know, have some confidence in my intellect that it's the latter that interests me, and I, I think all of us. So, you know, isn't, isn't there something in the paint in that, that tells us about the attitude towards paint? If you're a really great artist, yes. But what if you just can't realize what you want? Then it's not there. Well, let's open this up, both um, Aram and Rothenberg, to the floor. Um, um, any comments on these two artists? Yes, let's have uh, the lady in the white hair, Mernet. Um, Use the mic, please. Okay, the, well, one comment is about the show of the... Um, can't remember his name, the young Iranian. Uh, um, Aram, Kamru's. Uh, yeah, but, uh, which I saw this afternoon and thought was hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm shocked to hear people talking about it as being that he was trying to do this serious thing between um, the spiritual and the political or whatever. It seemed uh, to have more to do with Clemente than with Blechner. 
if I was going to make right. any connection. More Clementi than Blackner, oh, she says, yeah. and they're intentionally hilarious. They've got nothing to do with, um, uh, you know, yeah. reconciling abstract painting and mysticism. Yes, and the and, next comment? And, and as far as Rothenberg is concerned, I love Rothenberg's paintings. I didn't like this show. Um, and one reason is because one of the things I like about Rothenberg, about the paintings the last 20 years, is the way she could isolate body parts and make them stand for a whole body like no one else that I know can do. And part of the reason that worked was because she would hack, make all these hack marks and these things would emerge out of the, this field and then they would conjure with just this body part this whole situation, which was marvelous. And when she starts making these puppets, there's a logical explanation for mm -hmm. why these body parts are body parts. And then it seemed to demystify de or make this whole thing sort of prosaic. So I was very... Uh, let down on that basis. Let down Great. in that respect. Everything Good. seemed like the mystery, like the Wizard of Oz. You know, suddenly okay. Appeared. On the subject of the Wizard of Oz, you can get a very magical effect by waving the mic, but you can get a better effect by talking into it. <laughs> so, but thank you very much for both those comments. And if you pass the mic back, the next person who gets the mic, don't wave it, just, just talk into it. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, lady here, Miriam, who am I? Um, I've always felt about Susan Rothenberg that her work conveys what many people's work deals with, a tug of war between a paint surface and image. And I've always felt that tension in her work was kind of interesting. And it's, an, it's a, a, you always feel, you're not sure which one is going to get the upper hand. But it's an, uh, I think she's trying to uh, focus on both at the same time and that tug of war, which I guess kind of started mostly with Soutine and went on from there. Okay. May I ask where you saw the tension in the paintings? No, no, the tension between imagery and yeah, where uh, paint. did you? How did you see because that? Because the paint always seems almost ready to overwhelm the image, but the image tries to assert itself against the. That's how I always felt when I saw the horses from the very beginning and the suggestion of figures uh, that one was trying to overwhelm the other, but she's kind of trying to deal with both. Great, I think it's a very interesting and intelligent reading. I buy that. I'm impressed by it. Great. Um, someone else? Anyone else? Well, we've come up, we can't have really dealt with it all. Come on, yes, great. Um, the thing I felt about Rothenberg's work is that the parts of all the puppets were complete parts. And I thought that was kind of odd because they were supposed to be, they, they seemed to be one of being, they seemed to want to be about fragmenting, but they were never, not fragments. Like none of the parts were broken, they were just sections of a whole, like a sections of a, an arm, sections of a calf, sections of a, an arm. And so I kept looking at them thinking they were gonna be, they would disappear like you were talking about, the, you know, the tension between the, the image and the surface. And I was kind of waiting for that to happen, but I, f I didn't feel like that happened in the particular way that she used, you know, this, the mannequin part, the, the, you know, the puppet part. And that just bothered me in the in the work. It just okay. didn't let me get into the into the things that I've often felt about it when it would, you know, have that kind of pull. Great, thank you. Good. Um, yes, the lady at the front here. Yeah. 
Thank you. Um, this is a question for David. Um, um, forgive me, Kamruz Aram is on the cover, right, of the current issue. How does a young artist who doesn't, who sort of comes out of nowhere, how does he get to be on the cover? Well, uh, we're, first we're off, about Art in America. Maybe. Art in America, yes. Art in America cover painting is not in the show, by the way. I've, I've heard people are going to the gallery expecting <laughs> to see it, but it's not in the show. Um, that was a story proposed by Gary Indiana, the author who thought, you know, he would, he's the new young uh, painter we should look at and we should pay attention to his development and see what happens. So he lucked out. He's, he <laughs> just, and Perry Rubenstein sent, you know, gorgeous images. Uh, you know, we, the layout kept getting larger. So. And they do reproduce well, I think. But, I'm but, just always curious to know how how something it, arrives at where it arrives. It's usually the writer who proposes the story to to us. The writer proposes the story, but it's not the I writer mean, who proposes the image on the. No, cover. no, and then the, hmm. it starts with the writer, and then it de depends on how it looks on the. Well, the, the, the moral the moral of this tale to dealers is not to skimp on the photography. Yes. So, but when, uh, wait, is it David though? I mean, it's not. The two there's some kind the panel, of discussion way. about. What what should go on the cover? Because oh, it can't sure. it can't simply be the quality of the of the image as a possibility for the no, cover. Well, Glenn O'Brien and Marsha Vetchuk, our editor in chief, all looked over all of our major stories and decided which image pops out. And as Carol said about the life Im uh, covers, you you pick the image that is bound to leap off the newsstand. So that's so good. Thank yeah, you. I thought the cover was very successful. Yes, thank you. Great. Uh, anybody else like to um, uh, make a comment or a question? Um, uh, oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Please do. I just am interested in, you know, how much Susan Rosenberg and Bruce Nauman speak together because when I looked at these images in the <laughs> exhibition, I saw Bruce Mountain's uh, Ferris wheels with horses hanging upside down, that kind of thing. And I thought that maybe they might have a really nice conversation since they're living together and probably have a fairly decent relationship. I thought maybe that might be part of the inspiration for these paintings, although the show really let me down. I didn't like the show at all. And the okay. other thing is, is I haven't ever seen the, the first artist that we looked at here, but he kind of reminded me of more of Kenny Scharf than anybody else because they were sort of like the Jetson kind of thing of the colors and the what was going on. That's, yeah, I, I, that's I, it. The, the humor, the kitsch element is, I, I think, some of us would agree, is, is the predominant one in, the, in that work. Yeah, I mean, do you think, I mean, like the whole idea of them being able to speak together, don't you think that in Oh, speak. You did yes, say speak. Speak, speak. Ah. yes. Speak. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure that, great. Okay, <laughs> I, I misheard. Okay, great. Uh, speak. Not sleep, but so. <laughs> right. Okay. Because I thought it'd be strange if you can't ask questions about the intentions of an artist, but you can ask who they're sleeping with. Okay. Great. Well, I. Th uh, anyone else like to make a comment? Because I actually could talk all evening about Rothenberg and Nauman, but I, I think I've always resisted doing that, thinking it's politically incorrect, because one would very, very rarely, in talking about a male artist, bring in his wife. That's just my little thing. Yeah, but anyway, I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing. 
I got one thing right on the PC. <laughs> I've never been on a panel with Michael where at some point he hasn't corrected me on some point of political correctness, so I'm glad that Carol is telling me I got it right. It just remains to me to thank the Academy and to draw your attention to the next and last in our advertised series of review panels on Friday, April the 24th, and to draw your attention to the fact that Tacita Dean, who's the first artist on the list, her show opens on April the 9th, so don't run tomorrow morning to start your homework for review panel number 30 with Deborah Garwood, Blake Gopnik and Alexi Worth. But thanks to this evening's panellists and thanks to you. Good night. (laughs) 